The mission of Mind, Body, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your physical and mental health, and encourage community. We're in for a privilege today, folks. We have as our guest Mark Blumenthal. He's the founder and executive director of the American Botanical Council, and he's got so many articles and has done so much in his career that I could spend the entire program just listing his credentials. Stay tuned because Mark Blumenthal is going to be talking about the misbranding of dietary supplements. He's going to be talking about the use of herbal teas by mothers with infants. He's going to be talking about ayahuasca and psilocybin, psychoactive plants, and a lot more. Stay tuned for this terrific interview with Mark Blumenthal coming to us from Austin, Texas. But first, some news and notes in psychology and medicine. I have here a, uh, a letter from Petra Schulte, the nutrition educator and grant coordinator for the Fort Bragg Unified uh, School District, sort of uh, apropos to our discussion today with Mark Blumenthal. Uh, Blumenthal. Here is, she says, uh, here's some health information about the benefits of berries. I hope you can share the information with your listeners. Reasons to eat berries. Add one half cup of most berries, and it's a good source of vitamin C, fiber, and manganese. Petra says berries are rich in phytochemicals. Phytochemicals are naturally occurring compounds found in plants. Plants develop these chemicals to protect themselves. Now research has found that these chemicals also have protective factors for humans. We'll be asking Mark about that later in the program. Phytochemicals function as antioxidants, promote immunity, increase communication with cells in the body, and help repair damage to DNA. Well... Thank you, Petra, for sending that in. We look forward to further news and notes that you send us in the future. And we look forward to hearing what Mark has to say about eating berries and phytochemicals. Now on to some meat in news and notes in psychology and medicine. For decades, I have been part of a group that has been warning the American public about the use of psychoactive materials for medicinals, SSRIs, uh, Zyprexa, uh, Effexor, Prozac, Zoloft, Abilify, etc., and the benzodiazepines, Ativan, Xanax, the earlier drugs, Thorazine, Miltown. Well, now coming down the pike is some real scientific information about these various psychoactive, quote, medicinals. The Emperor's New Drugs, a book by Irving Kirsch, it's called Exploding the Antidepressant Myth, The Emperor's New Drugs. Next, a book by Robert Whitaker, Anatomy of an Epidemic, Magic Bullets, Psychiatric Drugs, and the Astonishing Rise of Mental Illness in America. And the third by Daniel Carlott, Unhinged, the Trouble with Psychiatry, A Doctor's Revelations About a Profession in Crisis. What are, these, what are these three experts from various parts of the United States and from the United Kingdom telling us? They're telling us that Americans are in the midst of a raging epidemic of mental illness, at least as judged by the increase in the number of people who are being treated. The question is, is there really an increase in mental illness? Or are we just treating more normal people as if they're mentally ill in order to sell them products? It looks like the evidence is stating that we're doing this, namely creating an epidemic, 
in order to sell them products. This is the real McCoy, folks. You want to read these books. You want to educate yourself. You're going to want to tell all your friends and family. This is as serious in the mental health profession as the banking bailout was for the financial world. It could be even more serious. You can somewhat live without your money, but you can't live if your brain is all messed up on what you thought was medicine with what is actually creating mental illness. Yes, you heard that right. The tally of those who are so disabled by mental disorders that they qualify for Supplemental Security Income, SSI, or Social Security Disability Insurance, SSDI, has increased two and a half times in the last 20 years and 35-fold in children. Yes, mental illness, or what is being called mental illness, is now the leading cause of disability in children, well ahead of physical disabilities like cerebral palsy or Down syndrome, for which federal programs were created. The National Institute of Mental Health has published that between 2000 and 2003, 46% of Americans met the criteria established by the American Psychiatric Association for having had at least one mental illness within four broad categories at some time in their lives. 46%, that's one out of every two people. One out of every two people is being considered mentally ill. These categories of mental illness include anxiety disorder, phobias, post-traumatic stress, mood disorders, major depression, and bipolar. Also, impulse control disorders, behavioral problems, attention deficits, substance abuse. Wow! Nowadays, treatment by medical doctors nearly always means psychoactive drugs. That is, drugs that affect the mental state. In fact, most psychiatrists treat only with drugs, and they refer patients to psychologists who believe in psychotherapy for talk therapy. But in the last four decades, the theory that mental illness is caused primarily by chemical imbalances has taken over, even though there is no evidence for it. That's correct. It's taken over without evidence. The theory that mental illness is caused primarily by chemical imbalances became accepted because of the media as well as by the medical profession, and it happened soon after Prozac came on the market in 1987 and was intensively promoted as a corrective for deficiency of serotonin in the brain. After that, the number of people treated for depression in this country tripled, and about 10% of Americans over six 10% of Americans over six now take antidepressants. And we have evidence, and these three authors agree that to the disturbing extent that these psychoactive drugs, through various forms of marketing, both legal and illegal, and what many people could describe as bribery, you've heard me talk about that on this radio program before, this has become clear that pharmaceutical companies are bribing Harvard psychiatrists to create diagnostic categories in order to sell more products. Now scientific data is coming in to back all of that up. Some of these professors and psychiatrists are under indictment as I speak. 
None of the three authors of these books, The Emperor's New Drugs, Anatomy of an Epidemic, and Unhinged, none of these authors authors subscribes to the popular theory that mental illness is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. In fact, in fact, they are saying just the opposite. They are saying that the drugs were found to do certain things to chemicals in the brain, but the people who supposedly had the illness were not out of balance to begin with, but they were out of balance after taking the drugs. They say that the logic of giving these drugs in order to change the chemicals in the brain that were normal to begin with, it would be like arguing that fevers are caused by too little aspirin. You get it? Very important stuff here. We're going to be doing a whole series of programs on this, but I had to bring you the information right now. Neurotransmitter function seems to be normal in people with mental illness before treatment. You got that, folks? Neurotransmitter brain chemicals are normal in people with mental illness before they take these psychoactive medicines, and then they become abnormal afterwards. This is, this is almost beyond belief, but it's believable. Just to sum up what these authors are saying, and then we're going on to Mark Blumenthal. It now seems beyond question that the traditional account, for example, of depression as a chemical imbalance in the brain is simply wrong. They ask, all these authors, these scientists ask, why the theory of chemical imbalance persists despite the lack of evidence is unknown except for the conjecture that we are being sold the mental illness chemical imbalance theory by the pharmaceutical companies in order to sell product. This is aligned. If you wonder how they could do it, how they live with themselves, I remind you of the three leaders of the major tobacco companies in the United States who stood before Congress. We've seen them on TV raising their hands and swearing that nicotine was not an addictive substance. We will come back to this topic in the future. And now, from Austin, Texas, Mark Blumenthal, founder and executive director of the American Botanical Council, editor-publisher of Herbal Gram, an international peer-reviewed quarterly journal, the contents of which reflect the educational goals of the American Botanical Council. He's been an adjunct associate professor of medicinal chemistry at the University of Austin. He's on the has been at the College of Pharmacy. He served as co-founder and former vice president of the Herb Research Foundation. I could go on and on. He's written 600 articles, if you can believe it. I don't know where he finds the time. I'm going to ask him how he does that. Arguably, the man who's about to come on our program is amongst, if not the foremost expert in the United States, if not on the planet, in herbal medicine. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Mark Blumenthal. Well, thank you. Uh, good morning, and thanks for inviting me, and uh, thank you for that very generous introduction. Uh, I find myself to be very grateful to be among many people who have made the study of medicinal plants and herbal medicine uh, their life's work, and I'm just honored to be included in this group. Uh, there's many, many people in, this, in the United States and around the world who are 
extremely knowledgeable about medicinal plants, and one of the, it's one of those things where the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know, because it's one of those vast fields of study, of investigation, of discovery, both based on the ethnobotanical, traditional, historical uses, as well as the modern scientific research. So it's an open-ended conversation, and it's just fun and thrilling and exciting to be part of it. How many hours a night do you average in sleep? Uh, I was getting about five and a half or six, and I, I promised myself and my wife that I would start getting more because uh, at the tender age, two months short of 65, I feel uh, much better when I get seven or eight, even eight hours. The reason I asked you that question about how much you sleep, I mean, it's, it's known that Benjamin Franklin often slept four hours and 48, and he got an awful lot done. Yeah. You've published 600 articles, and the first thing I wanted to know is where did you find the time when you're doing so many of these other things to publish so much and write so much? Fantastic. So I had to ask you about, yeah. about well, your sleep. <laughs> well, I, I am a morning person. I, I do get up around 5 or 5.30 usually every morning, uh, meditate, and then uh, listen, drink green tea and listen to NPR and uh, whatever, read the New York Times and then start doing my email and editing. But uh, the mornings are for me, and my wife sleeps until 9 or 10. But so we're on different shifts, so to speak. Uh, but there's, there's so much interest. Frankly, uh, Rick, there's, there's so much information out there and so much interest. I'm, I'm just, I'm feel just grateful and lucky that I found uh, my bliss in the area of the study and dissemination of information of medicinal plants. So I don't see it as work. I see it as just uh, a, the learning curve. And I'm so grateful to be in the curve or on the curve. Give us some headlines about where we are right now with the use of botanicals as medicines. What's the, what's the hot topic right now? Well, one of the biggest pieces of news I think that's worth reporting is in the last two years, uh, in 2009 and 2010, the two full years that we were officially in a recession, uh, consumer use of herbal dietary supplements, both in the natural food stores and the mainstream uh, grocery and drug stores, actually increased. Uh, diet- dietary supplements in general and herbal dietary supplements specifically were one of those areas of consumer products that actually increased in sales at a time when consumer purchases of uh, most other kinds of products, household goods, etc., actually declined. So the good news here, or the take-home message, is that there is a strong commitment among many American consumers for uh, nutrition, good health, natural medicine, depending on how you want to look at how people come to this conversation. And even at a time of declining purchasing power, people have chosen to vote with their diminishing and scarce dollars uh, for the herbal supplements and the herbal teas, etc., cetera, uh, which I think is uh, a very interesting news. So sales in, as I've read, sales in the natural and health foods area grew to uh, what, a billion and a half in, in 2010. Is that to sound right to you? Yeah, the, the, the total market for herbs is about $5.5 billion. This is one of those conversations where, uh, you know, figures don't lie, but liars figure. Uh-huh. And I use that term kind of guardedly and, and with a smile, uh, tongue-in-cheek. The, it's hard to get good, solid, econometric data uh, statistical data on the sale of herbs uh, and other supplements because a lot of it's through mail order, through direct um, selling associations and companies uh, like your multi-level marketing companies. A lot of it's on the internet through private companies that uh, privately held companies that yeah. don't, don't report their statistics. Uh, so it's hard to really know what's going on. We do have better tracking in the mass. But it's market. a growth industry. It's a growth. Okay, it's, let's let's get to some meaty stuff more important than the sure. than the than the uh, finance. 
Yes. Uh, let's talk about whether, to, in your opinion, the top five selling single herbal elements are any good, do, uh, effective. Do they do something? The first one, according to, to the research I've done, is flaxseed oil. Right? Yes, uh, we showed that in the health food market. Uh, that was uh, one of the number one selling products, and uh, interestingly, as, as a supplement as well, yes. as, as well as a food. And, of course, we know that flax has a number of different uh, uses as well as benefits. I mean, it's got, it contains omega-3s, and so you've got, uh, it's a good nutritional source of omega-3s, maybe not as good as, as fish oil, according to some, but for the vegans, uh, it's, it's one of those areas where they could go and get some omega-3s, you know, they're not the, the long chain or the short chain fatty acids. So you may have uh, different people uh, arguing, you know, which are the better quality sources of, of omega-3 fatty acids, uh, chia, flax, etc. But the fact is that that's one of the areas that's driving that train. But what about it, flax oil? Yes or no? Do we buy it? Is it good? Is it effective? Sure. I mean, I think it's definitely uh, it's definitely a good nutritional source of, uh, of omega-3s, and I think it's definitely a, a yes, depending on what your preferences are. For some How about people. you? You you eat it? Do you, do you feed it to your kids? I- uh, my, our kids are, are out of the house. Uh, oh, I, I actually, that's right, you're 65. I, I'm a vegetarian. Actually, I'll be honest. I've, I'm a vegetarian. You got to be honest because years. I'm a psychologist. I'll know exactly. you're not being honest. As I say. But but here's here's the here's the admission. I do take fish oil, even though I'm a vegetarian for 43 years. Okay. So I take fish oil because I just think that the research is compelling on it. So on fish it's, oil, it's medicine. Yes. I How do you it. take it orally? What do you take? I take a product that comes. It's called. Uh, well, I don't want to start promoting products. Okay. But I take a, uh, a product that, uh, can, that re- reportedly contains a high level of DHA and EPA at around 800 milligrams per tablet, and I take two ca- capsules. I take two of those a day. Okay, and I love the fact that you're not mentioning the name of the product. That's, uh, that's terrific. Okay. Well, I'm an, I run an independent nonprofit organization, and if we referred to specific research, I think it's appropriate and it's part of our style sheet to mention the company and the product because not all these products are the same as yes. is the case say, with conventional pharmaceutical drugs where a certain compound is a certain compound by law and by definition. With herbs and other supplements, they may vary from one manufacturer to the other. So it's important, even necessary, to identify and acknowledge the name of the product, uh, when you're, especially if you're doing retrospective analysis of clinical trials because they may be very different in their composition. So suppose some of our listeners want to go to the website of your research organization and read some of that stuff. How do they get there? Herbalgram.org, H-E-R-B-A-L-G-R-A-M. Herbalgram is our peer-reviewed quarterly journal, and it's our uh, commercial-free, I mean, it's, not, it's a non-commercial website. All we do have a few pop-up ads in the front on the homepage, but it's not uh, driven by... Uh, Manufacturers, we're not selling products. We're just an independent nonprofit organization, and about twenty or twenty-five percent of all the material on our website is free to the public. You heard it, folks. Herbalgram.org. It's an opportunity to get honest research, and I kid you not, because in addition to the fact that Mark Blumenthal has written these six hundred articles and has his <clears throat> prestigious resume, I can also tell you that he's personal friends with a good personal friend of mine who speaks well of him for over 30 years. So this is the real McCoy, herbalgram.org. He takes fish oil. Flax, <laughs> you're recommending. Yeah. Let's see, the Latin name for flax is Ninum Usitatismum. Linum, yeah, or li- linum. Linum in Latin. You know, linum, because, uh, and by the way, flax is linen, right? And L- the word linum, uh, is- or linum, uh, it's in the Latin where we get the word linum. It's also where we get the word line because they used to draw lines using a piece of 
flax. Ah, I like that. Okay, let's move on. What about grass? How about eating grass, wheat grass, barley that people are eating? Uh, that's basically coming, again, from a, a high level of chlorophyll, as a source of chlorophyll, uh, minerals, etc. Not a lot of research on that in the pharmacological area. The research is primarily nutritional. People have been eating wheat grass, uh, and so now they're doing it, taking wheat and barley grass, grass and drying it. There's different types of products out there. Very popular in the health food market in the top five, not even in the top 20 in the mass market. Uh, where you, and, and I think the indicator here is you have a different shopper that's actually buying these products in the drugstore or supermarket compared to, say, the Whole Foods market or the, 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 the Henry's or whatever, uh, Trader Joe's, whatever you want to call it, in the health, or their independent health food store. So you have a different type of shopper with a different agenda, so to speak, and a different level of commitment yeah. to the core values of natural medicine and good nutrition. But we know about the shoppers. The shoppers could be buying stuff because somebody said they saw somebody throw something over their shoulder and a plane flew over, and yeah. therefore it was good. I want to know science, wheatgrass, and barley, yes or no? I would say yes from a nutritional perspective, yes. Yes from a Okay. Does Mark Blumenthal eat wheatgrass or barley? Uh, currently, I'm not supplementing my diet with any, but when I'm in a juice bar, I'll take a shot of wheatgrass if they have it fresh, yes. How about your grown kids who are out of the house? they eating wheatgrass or barley? Uh, I'll bet my kids are not. Okay. <laughs> By the way, there's a place down in Southern California that I think I'm going to go down to and check out called Optimum Health in San Diego. They have people eating uh, wheatgrass for the entire week. Am I going to turn into a cow? What's going to happen down there? Well, you're going to get a lot of chlorophyll, and of course, as they say, chlorophyll and hemoglobin have very similar chemical structures. One being uh, has an iron uh, ion, and the other one having, I think, a magnesium, or is it manganese? I forget which. Manganese. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and so that's an interesting thing. I've always thought that was fascinating. Uh, that uh, the 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 thing that runs hum- uh, animals and uh, cold-blooded, warm-blooded animals, excuse me, and and, and plants is so similar chemically. You'll get a lot of. Uh, You'll get a lot of chlorophyll. Whether you'll uh, you'll probably get a lot of detoxification. At least that's going to be part of the promotion. Of well, that's the promotion. But I yeah. want to know the science. I mean, am I going to be coming back instead of saying hello, Mark? I'm going to go like that. Uh, well, that I, sounded like a female cow. Well, th- uh, well, you know, so that, that, nowadays so it's not too late for maybe me. Maybe there's more properties there than you thought. Okay, wheatgrass and barley. I like the name here of uh, barley. It's called uh, Hortium vulgare. Is there yeah. something vulgar about? No, uh, that just means Latin. It means common. Common. It's, it's used, oh, the yeah. vulgar, yes. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's go on to this aloe vera. Yeah, aloe vera is interesting. You know, aloe vera has been dismissed as a medicinal plant, I think, by our culture over the last 30 or 40 years because of its acceptance in cosmetics. I mean, Gillette Foamy Shave Cream and Vaseline Intensive Care Lotion and a lot of these, you know, consumer products that are mainstream have started putting at least some level of, uh, of aloe vera in their products to try to increase consumer aware, uh, uh, buy-in to think that these products are healthy or he- helpful for the skin. Uh, aloe vera is such a well-known emollient for light sunburns and, and for the skin that it becomes more of a, cos- in the minds of the consumer, more of a cosmetic item than it is a, uh, a medicinal plant. However, both topically and internally, primarily topically for helping uh, uh, skin and that type of pro- uh, pro- problem, uh, helping uh, with uh, small cuts and abrasions, Aloe vera has been shown in clinical trials to heal uh, and speed up the uh, healing time, the granulation, etc. Definitely a medicinal plant is one of the best ways you can show somebody how the power of plants, putting a little aloe vera, aloe vera gel directly from the plant, especially if it's fresh, uh, on a burn or a sting can help re- reduce its uh, 
or eliminate uh, the pain within seconds. And I think that's no, no better way to show the benefits of a healing plant than aloe vera. Okay, yes on aloe vera, folks, yeah, sure. for a burn. Well, in some cases, I think aloe vera may be uh, overly promoted. In some cases, some people think that you know drinking aloe vera juice is a, is a great detoxifier. It may be. Uh, the question is, you know, what does that mean? Uh, what are you detoxifying? I think some of that maybe get, gets over-promoted, but I think the internal use of aloe vera is relatively safe. Keep in mind, however, that aloe vera, uh, a certain type of, of aloe, a different type of aloe than you find mostly in the market, also has strong laxative properties, and it was formerly used as an officially recognized uh, stimulant laxative. And some improperly manufactured aloe products can still have some of that uh, aloe uh, stimulant laxative ingredient in them, but by and large, most of the products don't have that. What do you think about it as a laxative? Would you use it yourself or if you had kids, people listening? Uh, if I were constipated, I would probably uh, use uh, Cascara Sagrada and or Senna, uh, Senna is an FDA-approved over-the-counter. How do you spell that, please? S-E-N-N-A. You got that, folks? S-E-N-N-A. It's a natural product? Now, that, that, and that's if I had long... Uh, constipation did not respond to bulk laxatives, which I think would be the first choice in laxation. Such as? Uh, bulk laxatives would be like psyllium seeds. Psyllium, yes. Which... And even, even uh, by the way, if the flaxseed we talked about earlier... Uh, operates uh, in a, as a bulk laxative sometimes in a very similar way as psyllium. It's got this mucilaginous coating on the seed that when it's, when it's uh, swallowed uh, actually starts bulking up because the mucilage expands in the presence of water. You know, you mentioned psyllium, and uh, the Harvard did a longitudinal study on psyllium, I remember some years ago, indicating that three spoons of psyllium, a, a spoon every other day, three days a week, uh, lowered cholesterol Correct. by 10 or 15. You remember that study? Yes, I do. What do you think of that study? Uh, probably uh, reasonable. Uh, uh, you know, psyllium is a safe item, and I think one of the cereal, a cereal companies started putting it in one of their cereal, I think Kellogg or somebody. It's a husk, so, isn't it? It's a husk of a very small seed. It comes from the plantain plant. Okay, so psyllium, yes. Yeah, we get we, they, India exports hundreds of tons of psyllium uh, every year. Not easy to get down. <laughs> the psyllium. Uh, people taking capsules sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's move on. What about stevia? Stevia is something I've started yeah. to use in my morning. Uh, I use it with a glass of hot water and lemon. Yeah. Stevia is a natural sweetener from South America. Gotten very popular in the last couple of years now. A lot of it's being produced in China. Uh, the reason that stevia is on the list of the dietary supplement is, is a regulatory kind of artifact. From the early 1990s, when the FDA banned its importation because they thought it was unsafe, although they had no evidence to prove that, uh, some people have uh, accused them of being at the effect of the sugar lobby, etc., but I don't have any direct evidence to support that contention. This is always this conspiracy thing that comes up among some people. But the fact is that what happened a couple of years ago some of the big companies like Cargill and others have kind of stepped in. Uh, Coca-Cola's gotten involved with Cargill and others, and they've taken a certain stevia extract that meets a certain inter uh, European uh, safety standard, and they're now allowing it. And the FDA looked at the, at the clinical research and the toxicological research, et cetera, and found no evidence of, a, of lack of safety, no safety problems whatsoever. So certain stevia extracts are now allowed to be sold as food ingredients, as sweeteners, as tabletop sweeteners, etc. However, before that happened, a few years ago, the last, uh, I would say, since 1998, 1995, excuse me, so about 13 or 14 years, stevia was exempted from the FDA import ban if it were sold as a dietary supplement. Ha, ha, ha. 
Uh huh. Yeah. So that what's happening is, ironically, you would take more stevia in a capsule or tablet or in a liquid extract that you would uh, put out of a dropper bottle and put into your tea or your coffee or whatever you're trying to sweeten. You would theoretically get more of this, what FDA thought might be an unsafe product, even though it's no, there's no evidence of that. Uh, ironically, and when taken as a dietary supplement, but that was a regulatory loophole. And uh, so basically that's why we still see stevia counted as a dietary supplement where it's being sold in particularly the health food market. Uh, and even though in the next couple of years we'll probably see that drop as more and more products containing stevia and more and more products selling stevia as a sweetener and not masquerading as a supplement uh, become increasingly popular. There's but it's more- a non-caloric, safe, natural sweetener. And uh, especially in the natural food market, a lot of people have used it. The diabetics find it uh, quite useful, et cetera, and there's ways to cook with it, uh, especially with some of these products, so you can actually bake with it in some cases. Does Mark Blumenthal use a sweetener? No, I don't. I, I generally avoid most sweeteners. Okay. Good to know, listeners. He doesn't use it. Hmm. I may... Well, I don't, I don't sweeten my coffee. I don't sweeten my green tea. I don't uh, don't eat much sweets. Uh, I used to have a sweet tooth as a kid. I was a roly poly chunky kid. I've pretty much, as during my vegetarian uh, odyssey, I've pretty much pulled away from any form of sweetener. I just let go of the sweet tooth. Okay, you heard that, folks. Um, you mentioned uh, your morning coffee and tea, so let's hear mm-hmm. about them. What about the effects of coffee and tea? Well, you know, some of the research recently came out on coffee that uh, men who drink the large amounts of, or reasonable amounts of coffee have a lower incidence of prostate cancer, which I thought was an interesting correlation. How much coffee they have to drink? I think remember? it was uh, three to five cups a day, if I remember correctly. See, then you run into yeah. my area, because one of the most severe forms of uh, chemical depression I ever ran into was a couple that came to me all the way from Ohio, mm-hmm. and uh, they thought, uh, who knows what, with the diagnosis, and I discovered that they were drinking 10 or 15 cups of coffee a day each, and naturally giving them a high, that followed by a very severe depression. Right. So the question is, you know, where in the amount of coffee is the safety line you know when you go over then you then run into the post high depression and what's an amount that's helpful can you give us a well, an opinion uh, and that's a hard one to answer frankly in my case i drink what i i could drink one third cap in the morning so i'll drink like eight cups of coffee between you know five thirty six o'clock in the morning and right now i've got green tea eight cups of coffee in the morning but it's one third cap so you're really drinking, uh, drinking maybe, maybe two, two, two to three, three cups, cups and that sounds pretty safe. Yeah, Otherwise, eight cups of real coffee, I was going to invite you no, to my no, couch. No, no, no. I'm, I'm already energetic enough. But, I, I, <laughs> but, the, but some of the benefits, like in green tea, some of the benefits of green tea have been shown to be, I'm just jumping over to tea right now. Yes, please. <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of work in that area. Yes. I'm a big believer in green tea. I, I like the paper coffee. I like bitter. I think in our culture, you know, it's good that we see more bitter foods coming back in. I think it's, it's healthy to stimulate digestion and, and, and your, your juices, so to speak, to eat bitter foods. Uh, you know, we tend to over, we take our bitter foods and we, we sweeten them up, whether it's coffee, whether it's chocolate, uh, et cetera. Uh, most people tend, until recently, have tended to avoid bitter greens, which now we know are healthy and good for you in the spring. So it's great to walk in the drugstore now and get organic spring mix, you know, and already made ready to, to put some salad, some lemon on or some salad oil on and you're ready to go. But, uh, but bitter foods, I think, are good for you. And, uh, you know, to, to a point, of course, there's a reason that nature puts bitter principles in plants, and sometimes it's a warning to stay away. So uh, I'm not saying bitter is always better. But uh, the, the green tea, you know, there's some benefits of green tea that go beyond its caffeine content. One of them is, is theanine. Theanine is an amino acid found in green tea. <coughs> Excuse me. Certainly. That probably is the reason 
why Japanese Buddhist monks like green tea so much, because they would drink green tea and meditate and probably and get a little bit of caffeine. It's got 1% to 2% caffeine in it, but it also has about 1% theanine. And theanine, this amino acid, has a, a GABAergic effect, or GABAminergic effect, that basically helps you stay gen- focused but calm. It has an anxiolytic effect that helps you reduce anxiety. Uh, theanine, which is now available in a dietary supplement form, uh, although it's not in the top 20 right now, I think it's a, it's a comer. I think it's something that's going to be gr- growing in, in the marketplace and has been growing. It's also found in various uh, uh, functional drinks or beverages. I think theanine is an overlooked plant material that has a strong future benefit in dietary, not only in dietary supplementation in general, but in your particular area, which appears to be psychology. What do you mean appears to be? I've been doing it for 50 years. <laughs> better, better actually be we, by now or I'm in big trouble. Yeah, but we just met this morning. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be. So how do you spell theanine? T-H-E-A-N-I-N-E. T-H-E-A-N-I-N-E, and you're suggesting strongly that this is an, an anxiolytic. Correct. Uh, it has an antidepressant effect. It has an anxiolytic effect. So it has a slight mood-elevating effect. This stuff is something worth looking at, and, it, and it's, the safety is well-established. Uh, it's the safest because it's, uh, it's it comes from green teas. It's, it's, well, it's, it's one of the most, I mean, it's in one of the most highly drunk beverages in the world, tea. I mean, next to water, tea is the number two beverage in the entire world. Before coffee. Yeah. I, I think there's more tea drunk in the world than there's coffee, yeah. I mean, there's not really hard stats on that, but uh, generally speaking, if you look at China, India, Southeast Asia, you know, a lot of parts of Africa and even uh, South America, there's a lot of tea drunk down there. Of course, South America, you have coffee, and, and North Africa, you've got coffee, but where it's, where it's re, um, native. But uh, I think there's probably more tea drunk worldwide than coffee. And the green tea, which is the tea that you have before it starts fermenting and turning into oolong or black tea, contains a lot more of those now widely recognized uh, antioxidant compounds, the catechins, that are extremely helpful uh, for a whole variety of health benefits. Uh, The research on tea is astonishingly supportive. Uh, I've been doing, watching that one very carefully over the last decade or so, and there's more and more epidemiological studies coming out correlating uh, the consumption of green tea with the reduction of gastrointestinal cancers and other forms of cancer. So I think that uh, people would be well advised to consider including three to five cups of green tea a day in their diet, no matter what you're doing. Folks, I, I can't underline enough what Mark Blumenthal just said, particularly in light of what I spoke to you about before, about the pharmaceutical industries pushing medicinal medicines that not only are not curing various kinds of mental, I'm not even going to call them mental illnesses anymore, I'm going to call them mental conditions because we're not even sure anymore that they are mental illnesses, they may be something that's been dreamt up by by, by uh, the pharmaceutical companies, and here we have one of the country's foremost experts on botanical and medicinal uh, plants, and he's telling us three to five cups of tea with theanine in it, and you're saying it's basically green tea that people can ask for and they'll get the theanine. Is that correct, Mark? That's correct. Uh, good stuff. And, and you, can get, you, can drink, you can get theanine in your tea, and you can also get dietary supplements in capsule or tablet form uh, with theanine, uh, just pure theanine, or just, uh, basically. And you can also get theanine as an additive in various uh, other drinks, etc. So this is, this is uh, good new stuff, and the research is very supportive of it, as it is. In general, the research on green tea and, and most teas across the board.
That it, sounds terrific. I mean, it, some of you who are listening have heard me say before, I think the, the most effective, the most number one, most effective way to deal with anxiety is through learning how to breathe properly correct. from the abdomen. Here, Mark's saying correct as yep. well. The word is going around the country on breathing. It doesn't cost anything. You can learn how to do it. Now we're hearing about something that we actually can take, take that has, has scientific evidence behind it. And it's he's not pushing a product. It's just basically green tea. It's worth your trying, folks, particularly if you have anxiety or know people who have anxiety. Mark, you published a, uh, an important article, one of your many important articles in the Journal of Pediatrics about uh, new mothers are uh, using herbal teas. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, but just to be clear, I did not publish the, the, the journal article. Oh, you were, you, were, you were interviewed in Bloomberg, and I, I yeah. thought, oh, excuse me. Yeah, I, yeah, I was interviewed by Bloomberg Business News. We're, we're very grateful as a nonprofit organization at the American Botanical Council. We get a lot of requests for interviews like this one. We don't have a PR agency out there booking us. We just receive uh, invitations to, to be interviewed and or uh, on various subjects when, when articles hit the press, and we're grateful that uh, we get called from people like Bloomberg. In this case, uh, some scientists, one of them was at the Food and Drug Administration, I think the lead author, uh, did a review on the various types of teas given by mothers to infants, and they're concerned that some of these teas might cause problems with infants. And uh, the, although their concern in many cases would certainly be uh, warranted with respect to, the, to anybody, I think it's totally legitimate to look at whatever mothers are giving their kids and determining uh, are they doing it correctly, is it uh, these products safe in general, are they administered in a safe way, uh, do we have any epidemiological evidence, or any pharmacovigilance evidence that suggests that there's a high incidence of reports of adverse effects related to the administration of teas. The fact is that for centuries, if not millennia, mothers have been feeding weak, gentle teas to their children, even infants, uh, for colic, upset stomach, that kind of thing. This is something that goes along way back. Even German physicians in uh, textbooks write about the benefits of weak teas like chamomile tea, catnip tea, etc., for colicky babies. And uh, we just would just try to make sure that there was a perspective on the, the what we, we anticipated to be the short-lived uh, public interest and, and reporting or misreporting on that on that study that came out a couple months ago. I think it was. Uh, we just want to point out that there's a rational basis for the use of weak gentle herbal teas in infants. Well, you know, excuse me, with due respect, yeah. the fact that people have been doing it for hundreds of years is not really a great argument because uh, people do things for hundreds of years that have negative effects as well. I mean, witness the mothers who put a little bit of booze in, yeah. milk, in milk bottles, and they've been doing with wine or booze or beer for hundreds of years, but it's not necessarily... Or I would say, I agree with you in principle, or worse, I mean, putting a little booze in the milk bottle or the beer, I mean, the beer's probably not so bad, especially in some countries where it's probably better than some of the water. Better than the water, yes. Yeah. But, uh, but no, I, I agree with you. The traditional use in and of itself is not ipso facto evidence of safety. Right. Although it is a form of evidence of presumed safety if it's not correlated with uh, observations of immediate or short-term adverse effects. You can have long-term cryptic adverse effects like uh, hepatic failure, or neurological problems associated with the tr eating of traditional foods, like you have with lathorism, a certain bean that can cause a neurological uh, problem with, uh, that ends up with paralysis. So I, I would agree with you in principle, yes. Uh, the, the 
taking uh, taking refuge under the argument traditionally used in and of itself is not ipso facto proof of safety or efficacy. I was just making commentary that it seems to be have been used traditionally and safely uh, for hundreds of years. And safely. That's, That's the key here yeah. for people listening. And safely. Yeah. So where can mothers find out more about the use of tea so that they can get some specifics, you know, how much to use, not to overdo it, etc.? Can they go to one of your websites? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think in our website would be the place because we're really not a source of self-medication. We're very more of a research-oriented site. Fair enough. Uh, but I, uh, there's a woman named Mary Bove, B-O-V-E, who's a naturopathic physician up in uh, New Hampshire, Maine, who I believe may have a website, B-O-V, Mary Bove, N-D, and I think she may have a book out on herbs uh, for children. Oh, good. Uh, that'd be helpful. Also, Kathy Kemper, who's a physician at Wake Forest University, uh, she's an MD, a How medical How do you spell doctor. Kemper, please? K-E-M-P-E-R. Okay. Kathy Kemper wrote a book about eight or ten years ago about botanicals in pediatrics. And uh-huh. I think she covers the responsible use of some of these herbs for children. Okay, folks, did you hear that? Mary Bove, B-O-V-E-M-D, and Kathy Kemper, K-E-M-P-E-R-M-D. If you people know people or are a person who has children and you want to use some herbal teas and you need some specifics, I just want to come back one quick, uh, quickly, Mark, about a theanine. Right. Some of the, the people that I work with, you know, they're going to hear uh, three to five cups. They're going to say, well, if three to five cups reduces anxiety, how about 15 or 20 cups and I'll get really mellow? Uh, what do you, what, what's your opinion on that? Yeah. You know, that case, if a little is good, make, more is better. You know. Yeah, I would make a distinction between L-theanine and the three to five cups of green tea that I mentioned. Uh-huh. If you're looking at the L-theanine specifically for the benefit of having the anti-anxiety effect, yes. then you would probably want to take it as a dietary supplement uh, or drink decaffeinated green tea. Okay, so dietary supplement, read the directions, or decaffeinated, because obviously if you're going to take caffeinated uh, green tea as an anti-anxiety drug, the caffeine's going to push you up, the anti-anxiety down, and you're into like a mild version of, uh, you know, of heroin and cocaine. Right. I, and I would, I would make the same statement, but I would say I wouldn't take the green tea as an anti-anxiety drug. I would take green tea as a, maybe an anxiety-reducing remedy. Thank you. Because I would not call it a drug. Yeah, well said. Well Although, said. I said corrected. I understand. And I, because these are foods, not drugs. And we're talking about dietary supplements and conventional foods, so they're not legally drugs. But interestingly, etymologically, the word drug comes from an old Dutch word, droog, which means to dry, because they dried plants to use them as medicines. The word drought has the same etymology. Uh, so a drug is literally a dried plant in pharmacy. Terrific. Oh, I love talking to you. Yeah, I, I hope this is going to be the first of many. I've got so many questions to ask you. I've got to move on quickly here. Uh, some uh, people I know, you know, they get up in the middle of the night as they're getting older and they uh, make, uh, no, I can't say that word, they, they urinate. Uh, what about salt palmetto? Does that help? I've been taking, frankly, personally, I've been taking a salt palmetto for probably 15 years and I'm 65. Uh, I find it very useful. Um, it's, that's, a, that's a case report of N equals 1. And I have a fairly <laughs> large uh, prostate. What he means when he says N equals 1, it means one subject, folks. N is right. the number of subjects. So there's one subject, and he urinates less by taking saw palmetto. Yeah. Those of you listening, if you have anecdotal information, want to call in on that, by the way. Or if you have a question for Mark, we've got 15 minutes left. Yeah. You can call in at 707-937-5103. I repeat. 707-937-5103. This is the chance to call in about something you're taking, wondering if it's doing any good, or maybe you just heard from somebody that it would be good, so you started eating it. What about garlic? 
Well, I, I love garlic. I'm one of the, uh, I'm, you know, aside from its anti-vampiral effects, which are well known in our culture. Very well known. Yes. Uh, the, the evidence for its reduction of, or ability to reduce cholesterol is wanting in the last uh, decade, probably four fairly good, well-designed de- well and good-sized clinical trials have not resulted in significant cholesterol reduction, but several studies have shown that long-term use of garlic can actually reduce and in some cases reverse arterial plaque buildup, and also garlic has been <coughs> excuse me, shown to... <coughs> excuse me. Uh, I need more green tea. I was about to say, what can we give you for that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Garlic has been shown also to lower blood pressure. It has a modest uh, transient blood pressure lowering effect. So if somebody has mildly elevated hypertension, somebody, or, you know, which is probably redundant, mild mild hypertension, they may want to consider uh, using uh, garlic as well as hibiscus, which is another herbal tea item that has been shown in four or five recent clinical studies, one just coming last year from Tufts University, uh, to lower... uh, blood pressure as well. So garlic definitely has some benefits from a cardiovascular perspective as well as, and this now applies probably to onions, shallots, leeks, and other members of the same uh, allium genus of of vegetables, uh, garlic can help reduce the risk of gastrointestinal cancers. Some several studies published in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute starting back in 79, looking at Chinese people eating large amounts of garlic and onions, etc., showed a significant reduction in the incidence of various types of gastrointestinal, especially stomach cancer. So garlic, a lot of good reason to put in your salads, put in your stir-fry, take the dietary supplement, whatever works for you. Garlic, yes. Saul Palmetto, do we have any, so we, yeah. other than your end of one, do we have any scientific yeah. evidence for Saul Palmetto actually uh, decreasing uh, urination as a result of uh, taking pressure off the, uh, the prostate? Yes, there's definitely research showing that Saul Palmetto reduces five or six of the different uh, elements of the International Prostate Symptom Score with a significantly higher level of safety compared to some of the conventional pharmaceutical drugs. These are in placebo-controlled trials as well as in head-to-head trials with, like, wow. uh, Flomax. Uh, however, a recent Cochrane review that came out last year uh, was a, uh, not very favorable on, on Sal Palmetto because they looked at all the clinical trials, eliminated many that did not meet their inclusion criteria and the ones that were left on the table. They basically said not enough good evidence here. But if you look at the totality of the evidence, it all seems to point pretty much the same direction as Sal Palmetto is safe and effective. I use, by the way, salt palmetto extract. Uh, salt palmetto is native to Florida. Uh, the extract I use comes from Germany, and it has added to it nettle root extract. So I use a salt palmetto nettle root combination from Germany that has been shown to be effective in about 14 or 16 clinical trials, including trials head-to-head against uh, conventional pharmaceutical drugs like Flomax. Boy, I, you know, I hope somebody's doing some good studies on you and keeping track because, uh, really, uh, you know, you, you know this stuff, obviously. You, you know it very deeply and broadly, and you're experimenting on yourself in the name of good science. And it would be, uh, would be really wonderful to have some, some uh, you know, hard data on you. Let's take a call over here. Yeah. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Um, I have uh, peripheral arterial disease. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've uh, read recently that uh, they've been doing studies with L-arginine, I think is how it's pronounced. Correct. Yes. Arginine, arginine. Okay. Uh, do you have any opinions about it? Yes, arginine is basically an amino acid, which means it's a protein-building block. 
It's not a botanical or herbal preparation. Generally, about though, is a new product on the market that is made from uh, has a, that has a uh, salt that made from hawthorn and beetroot. I think it is that has an arginine type effect. What it does it is the important thing about arginine is that it actually is a vasodilator. It increases nitric oxide levels from the endothelial layer of the insides of your arteries, so it basically expands them, thereby reducing blood pressure and increasing blood flow to the extremities. Uh, so arginine is one item that is, can be very useful. There's a couple of herbals, by the way, that have been shown to be very uh, promising in the area of PAD or PAOD, it's sometimes called peripheral arterial occlusive disease, uh, and that is uh, pycnogenol, which is a extra a patented extract from the French maritime pine bark, uh, pycnogenol, P-Y-C-N-O-G-E-N-O-L, pycnogenol, which is a has a lot of cardiovascular benefits. Spell it again, Mark, please. P-Y-C-N-O-G-E-N-O-L, P-Y-C-N-O-G-E-N-O-L, pycnogenol. It's a patented, clinically tested, probably 80 clinical studies on this, uh, extract from the pine bark uh, from uh, France, from northwestern France. And uh, all kinds of cardiovascular benefits, antioxidant effects, etc., including but not limited to uh, potential benefits in PAD. Also, uh, do you take it? Ginkgo. I do not. No. Do you uh, take ginkgo? I do not. But I, but I would if I believe that I had some reason to do it. Matter of fact, one does not need to take ginkgo just for uh, in memory impairment or short-term memory loss or early stages of uh, of, dement- of age-related dementia. Uh, we did a, a cover story in Herbalgram about five or six years ago on, I think, 16 clinical trials that had been published up to that time, around 2004, uh, on ginkgo in, uh, applied to people who were healthy, normal, healthy adults, yes. not people who were right. out of pathology. Uh-huh. And, and the evidence showed in this uh, systematic review that we conducted, uh, that we published, uh, that the evidence showed that ginkgo given to healthy adults can increase uh, short-term memory and a processing time of processing normal mental activities. But you don't take it yet. I do not. And I, not that I wouldn't. I just I don't feel the need. To I understand. And how many things can a person take? Uh, wow. I take about fifteen or sixteen tablets every morning and evening. You do. And I take no pharma. I take no prescription pharmaceutical drugs, except for one. And that, to be honest, is Armour Thyroid. I take the Armour Thyroid because it contains both the T3 and T4 instead of just the, instead of Synthroid, I have low thyroid. You do uh, have low thyroid? I do. And you take the Armour Thyroid. Well, that's a whole other topic that I want to get into yeah. on another time. Will you come back? Will you promise sure. me to come back? Happy to. You've got to come back. I mean, I want to talk to you about the bioidenticals. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about this course I took on the on the kidney and the liver where they're, where they're suggesting strongly to eat kale, to eat asparagus, to eat broccoli, dark green vegetables. I want to know... What about artichoke? They didn't mention artichoke, mm-hmm. but basically what the professor was saying was dark green, very yeah. dark green. You agree with that? I do. Yeah. And, of course, uh, we have seven minutes or so left. I've got to ask you, because I know the listeners want to know, talk to us about ayahuasca and psilocybin, please. Okay. Well, ayahuasca, they're, they're very different. Psilocybin, of course, is a is a, an alkaloid found in a uh, certain type of mushroom. It's very psychoactive and was very popular in the 60s and 70s as a uh, psychedelic drug of, uh, of, of, of recreational drug. Uh, it's illegal. Uh, there are some research showing that, uh, that, psych- that psilocybin in clinical trials can be useful for headaches. And also a recent clinical trial that came out of John Hopkins, I think in 2008, 
showed on 36 people that they administered who had never taken psilocybin before as a recreational drug. People who were spiritually aware had a profound spiritual experience taking the psilocybin, and 14 months later, upon re-examination, um, considered their psilocybin experimental experience to be one of the significant, uh, uh, most significant experiences of their entire life. Yeah, that was Bob Jesse's group. Yeah, up at... Up at, uh, at John Johns Hopkins, Hopkins so, right? Yeah, so this, yeah. Is a, this, this is very significant. Yeah. It made a lot of news, if you remember, but yeah, yeah, referred to now, referred to that as an MDMA, which is not a, a, a botanical as, no. uh, as in theogens. Right. Um, what about ayahuasca? Ayahuasca it... refers to both the plant and a mixture of plants. Ayahuasca literally means vine of the soul. It is the vine that grows in the Amazon basin, both in Brazil, Brazil, Colombia, and the Peru area, probably Bolivia too. The natives could take this and add a number of different local plants uh, to it to make a brew that they cook up, that make a dark tea, and they take it in ritual ceremonies for spiritual and for healing purposes. The ayahuasquero, or the shaman, who actually does the actual admixture, uh, actually goes on a journey with the patient, and it's believed within the confines of the traditional medicine of that culture that often... That the healing the, that the shaman goes with the patient or the the uh, the the, uh, the the person uh, to help them with their healing when they're in an altered state of consciousness. It definitely induces an altered state of consciousness. And a few years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court allowed the use of ayahuasca within uh, certain religious practices because two Brazilian religions have established some centers here in the United States with ayahuasca as the center of their religious practice, and much like. The use of the ritual peyote uh, cactus uh, for the Native American church it is protected under freedom of religion under federal law. Is there any scientific evidence for uh, ayahuasca uh, having healing properties? You know, uh, there definitely is some evidence suggesting that. Uh, the expert, probably the leading, one of the leading experts in this country, and that is Dennis McKenna, who's an ethnopsychopharmacologist. It's a long word. Terrence's brother? This is Terrence's younger brother. Yeah. Uh, the late Terrence McKenna. Yes, and he's doing research, and there there is some indication that ayahuasca has healing properties. I believe so. We're talking now. We're talking mental healing now. We're talking. Uh, yes, of course. Psych- okay, psychoact- you, from, all right. Psychoactive perspective. Yeah. You can Google uh, Dennis and Terrence McKenna, folks, and find out more about that. So that we, it's unknown. We we don't have total, uh, you know, hard scientific evidence on ayahuasca. Maybe something on psilo, uh, psilocybin. Uh, what about uh, here in Mendocino County? We have growing. Amanita muscaria. Any scientific evidence for the use of that as a uh, as a medicinal that's effective? Um, there may be, and I, frankly, I have not investigated that. Other than the fact that there have been a number of reported cases of liver toxicity associated with uh, the indiscriminate and and incorrect accidental ingestion of amanita muscaria, and of course, using a by the way, a milk thistle uh, fruit extract fraction intravenously or uh, has been able to help save people from having lost their livers and, in some cases, lost their lives. Yeah, the milk thistle. Yes, mm-hmm. it is known locally that there is something underneath in the uh, underside of the Amanita muscaria that is toxic. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and of course, the locals also... A very toxic also, compound called phalloidin. Yeah. Uh, I'm, and, I'm thinking of Amanita... I'm, thinking, I'm talking about Amanita from phalloides, a very a different species. Yeah, and vulgaris. But, but, if, you're not, but if, you're not, if you're not a mushroom, there's an old saying, there's many old mushroom hunters and there's many bold mushroom hunters. But there's no old bold mushroom hunters. If you don't know what you're doing, if you don't if you don't know your mushrooms, 
donate them. Okay, we're just we're running out of time, so I'm going to thank you in advance. Yeah. You promised to come back, so I'm going yeah. to be calling you for you to come back. Give us 30 seconds on the medicinal use, if any, of peyote. Well, again, peyote has not been, uh, to my knowledge, uh, been researched medicinally. Uh, there's a shortage going on, according to some of the people in the Native American church uh, involved, but it is basically a ritual uh, ceremonial cactus uh, preparation from South Texas and Northern Mexico uh, as part of the Native American church ritual. I'm not aware of any uh, legitimate uh, scientific or clinical research that's gone on about that, although uh, uh, the, the MAPS organization that you're familiar with has probably got better information than I do on that. Okay, folks, you want to Google that? That's MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS. You can Google it and find out more. Mark, we're coming to the end of the interview. I want to profoundly thank you for a wealth of information that you've given us today, and I'm going to hold you to your promise that uh, that you will come back and share more information with our listeners who, uh, who are just uh, getting a wonderful education from you. I'd be honored to do it. Thank you for inviting me. And, and, and I'm going to email you because I want a list of those 15 things that you, uh, medicinals that you take every single day. <laughs> and we'll okay. talk about those on the air in the future. Have You'll a wonderful find more about us at herbalgram.org. Okay, have a wonderful day. Thank you. So we're coming to the end of another edition of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I want to thank you for listening to today's broadcast, which is made possible by our staff at KZYX our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike Delora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks, 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Savings Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 